0: Let's begin with a uh, word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that uh, you have brought us together to study more about the history of your church, uh, particularly the history of our church, the Lutheran Church. And we pray that it would be edifying to us as we learn from our past and uh, learn about how your word has been preserved among your people. We pray... This through your Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever, Amen. Amen. All right. So last time uh, we let we just started this this topic of the world of the Reformation, and um, I ended on a kind of hopeful note, which I'll repeat uh, for review's sake, which is that um, the, this paragraph on the just on the bottom of page two twenty one is where we left off. And uh, this idea of different beliefs that there was um, Muslims that were invading and then there was this shift uh, in the the kind of early 1500s, late 1400s where a lot of the Muslims had been defeated and and Christianity was spreading. And then combine that with the, the Reformation and the gospel going forth and then especially going into the Western world eventually. Um, Columbus is happening, you know, not that uh, far away in history in uh, 1492, right? Mm-hmm. So the the note we had left off on was this idea that Christianity is spreading. And if you look at the history of the world uh, since the time of Christ, Christianity has continued to spread, right? So sometimes it's... Uh, it waxes and wanes in certain places, right? So sometimes it'll go somewhere and then it'll shrink again. But for the most part, when Christianity spreads, it does amazing things, right? And and it's also when Christianity spreads that we've seen over and over again throughout history that Christianity is what builds hospitals, right? Christianity is what turns third world countries into first world countries, Uh, christianity is always a positive influence on the morality of a country right because christianity is truth and and when people have the truth life is a lot better right so um yeah education right uh has largely been uh grown and influenced by by christianity when it when it begins in certain places so uh that's a that's a great thing and it's a hopeful thing and it also gives us hope i think for the future that okay maybe christianity is not spreading the way that we'd like to see it spread right now in our place and time but um i think steve mentioned last week you know as even as persecution comes that's an opportunity to regroup and to focus then on on the continuing spread of that gospel okay that leads us into this uh, next next thing that we'll, we'll begin with today, which is printing for the people. Okay, so this is top page 222. And this is a little paragraph here about the uh, printing press. And the when we're talking about the world of the Reformation, the printing press really cannot be underestimated. Um, so I'll just read this real quick. Intellectually, the spread of information was... Rapidly growing in Europe, around 1439, Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press. It is hard to understand the impact of this invention. The printing press created a means of quickly disseminating information that was previously unheard of. Books were often hand-copied and expensive to own. Think of how the world of information for us changed because of the Internet. All of a sudden, it was possible for ideas to travel faster than previously imagined. On top of this, the cost of printed materials went way down, which meant that common people could purchase and read tracts and join the ideas that were rippling through their world and what ideas there were. Okay, so um, in a little bit, we're going to talk about early attempts at reform and how there were a couple different people like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus uh, before Luther that recognized some of the problems in the um, nascent Roman Catholic Church, kind of in this era, but their their ideas weren't really able to take off like Luther's. And part of the reason for that is because of the printing press. Because prior to 1439, these ideas and this information just could not be disseminated that fast. And it took time for ideas to spread. Now it's possible for ideas to spread through word of mouth and and through preaching and through other means, but the thing that that really allowed Luther to take off was his his writing, right? His clear writing. And uh, I think I mentioned this before, but if you go in my office and you look at the the shelf that's like all red books, like that that's one set of Luther's works, which are still being more are being published. I don't have all the volumes. Um, I used to have all the volumes and then and then got behind on it. But that's. Just a small portion of of what he wrote. I mean, he wrote. He was just a, a a prolific writer is the word I was looking for. Just wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, and not only that did, but he also preached and he also, you know, spoke and all these other things. But his clear writing and and really even helping develop the German language for the common people to read was what really allowed the gospel to be proclaimed with this free course, right? Um, that it, it just really cannot be underestimated. I mean, even in some ways, I think the, the internet is maybe not as big of a change I, as, as going from not having books readily available to having books readily available. Right, that people could own. I mean, the internet allows us to basically have a lot of books all at our fingertips, um, and communication to happen even faster. But, but I think the going from basically no books to bo- to books is is just such a massive change. And it's it's things like this, by the way, that. Um, so sometimes when, when Lutherans look back on Luther, like, we, we obviously have to be careful that we say, you know, we don't worship Martin Luther. Like, uh, we don't, you know, that that's sometimes a critique that people give of Lutherans is, well, you guys don't worship Jesus, you worship Luther. That's not true at all. And it's only really, the only time we really talk about Luther a lot is when we're studying the Reformation. But... Um, there is a tradition of recognizing Luther as one of the greater saints through the history of the church, right? If you look at the, the the history of the church and you look at all the men who have done great things for the church, like made incredible contributions to the church, you know, after, let's say, after the time of the apostles, after the time of Christ, right? I mean, you got like Augustine, you got Constantine, right? You got some of these big, names the Aquinas right Luther's one of those he's a he without Luther um, the church would just not be what it is today like, that's just that's just a matter of historical fact um, and for that we should look at look at him with honor I think right like there's a tradition within the Lutheran Church of um, ca- calling Luther like whenever like the later Lutherans after Luther, but not really modern Lutherans will like talk about Luther. They'll be like the venerable Dr. Luther or something like that. Um, And you can kind of understand why because he is honorific in the sense that what he did by putting the Bible in the language of the people and by proclaiming the gospel clearly for the first time in hundreds of years was just truly amazing, right? I mean, he developed this, common german language for the people even Um, not even just theologically but it is pretty insane but yeah the printing press really was a a huge thing and and this idea of tracts and essays right um christians have always kind of liked this idea of tract right right um i don't know if you're ever bothered by people of other denominations trying to evangelize you, right? But the Mormons will give you tracts, the Jehovah's Witness will give you tracts, the Church of Christ will give you tracts. It's actually not a bad thing, right? The idea that we would have like little um, easy to understand pieces of paper that, you know, maybe a 10 pages long or whatever, that just go through point by point by point little explanations of different parts of the faith. Um, those are tracts that, that we have, and, and those are good things, and we have them, right? So we, we have these uh, little simple explanations. This is the most modern uh, Concordia Publishing House iteration of, of our tracks. So I think out here on the table you can grab one on the way out, or there's a bunch on the side over here, is like a simple explanation to the church service, right? So we have a little tract. Someone walks into the church. You don't know how Lutherans worship. Here's a simple explanation to the Lutheran, to the church service, right? It's pretty helpful. Um, but that idea was really pioneered by the Lutherans, right, by the evangelicals. That um, Here's some simple explanations to the, to the gospel, right? Here's what's wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. Here's um, why you should read the Bible in the original language, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, Steve, did you have something? Yeah, right, my
1: yeah. cousin in Uganda, when he comes over here, he always prints up Bibles in their language and tracts. Mm-hmm. And even Jesus video movies on whatever format they have, and <clears throat> it's really a, a help, right? You know? Because a lot of times it's the first time the natives are learning to read. Yeah, and they read it in their own language. It's like really present.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, it's it's pretty historically normal for there to be places and people. That speak a language but have never seen it written or read a language. Um, that's still true in a lot of places today. That there's spoken language, but there's not. It's not written. And so, uh, but that when you have mass literacy and in a, a mass written language like in English in America, for instance, um, the ability to share information via words is profound. All right. Um, this next section is pretty interesting, the, the Renaissance and the Reformation. The era of the Reformation was, in fact, the same era as the Renaissance, um, and this all also corresponds, by the way, with the Enlightenment. Renaissance, Enlightenment, it all kind of goes together in the Western world. Most likely, when you think of the Great Renaissance, uh, you think of the men of Italy, such as Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci and Michelangelo, who were early contemporaries of the reformer. Da Vinci died just two years after Luther posted his 95 theses, and Michelangelo was only eight years, a mere eight years older than Luther. Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and the other reformers uh, were really figures, however, not of the Italian Renaissance, but of the Northern Renaissance. Okay. Um, and I, I want to make this distinction. So the the book makes this distinction um, that the Northern Renaissance versus the Italian Renaissance. And it is a, a, a pretty important difference. Um, one of the differences between the Northern and the Italian Renaissance, and also some of the other, if you get into philosophy, the difference be- between what the reformers were trying to do in within, within this Northern Renaissance and what some of the other Enlightenment philosophers were trying to do is, a, is pretty major. And the major difference, um, as it says here, is that the Northern Renaissance and the Reformers were all about this idea of uh, back to the sources. Or in Latin, their kind of motto was... Uh, Ad fontes right back to the source back to the fountain of the information back to the, the source of the fountain right where the water comes up right and the um, Italian Renaissance and the and then kind of some of those enlightenment philosophers were much more focused on, on what we'd call humanism now the there's elements of both in both kind of camps but if you look at the humanism right humanism is focused on the human right that's what humanism is focused on and it's focused on what the human can accomplish right so you can think of like Rene descartes the the father of rationalism i i think therefore i am right my being is dependent and defined by myself right not by god and so that's uh the kind of the ultimate expression if you will of humanism um and now you get this uh today we have what we call um, secular humanism and secular humanism is the idea that god is totally out of the picture and all of life is about um just humanity on its own right so uh we're trying to set up a debate at uh, old Miss right now with the campus ministry um, the title of which is going to be Is Christianity Good for America? And I was trying to find someone who says Christianity is bad for America. Right? So um, but what I did to help look for people is went to the uh, human uh, like, what is it called? There's like a pretty widespread and popular Secular humanist organization of America, or something like that. It's like the it's like the um, humanist uh, association of humanists, or something like that. Um, that they have like a list of speakers. <laughs> that, was, that was helpful. Um, but anyway, th- there's, this is still very popular, right? This, this idea of secular humanism, um, and this, this is kind of where it has its roots. Now, the book is going to distinguish uh, a little bit of. Um, Make some nuances between humanism at this time and humanism now but we'll get there but the the more the northern renaissance so this is kind of the uh italian and uh more of the uh, enlightenment philosophy uh type of
2: what's the difference between the humanism and the atheist?
0: so uh secular humanists today are atheists for the most part, right? Or they'll say they're, like, agnostic, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But in some ways, they're synonyms. Um, Secular humanism is more a title for their operating philosophy, that it's about, like, me, and it's about my rationalism and my empiricism, where atheism is more of a statement about what I think about God. So they're just kind of coming at it from two different directions, but... Um, but this Northern Renaissance, the, the Reformers, their influence of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment is this idea of back to the sources. And for the Reformers, what is the source? Bible. The Bible. right? This is the big source that they're going back to, to the original Greek and Hebrew, going back to what it is that we get all of our our faith, all of our life from, is, is from the Holy Scriptures, okay? And so I'll just keep reading here. The Northern Renaissance emphasized learning the ancient languages and going back to the original source text rather than trusting in later summaries and translations. This is what uh, led Melanchthon to become one of the best biblical Greek scholars of the age and Luther to cling to the Bible as the source of our faith, Uh Further, Luther learned both Greek and Hebrew to first study the Bible in the original language and then later translated them into German. Luther learned that in religion, even more than in other things, he must ultimately hold to the original text of God's word and not to other people's biased translations. The idea of studying the Bible in the original language was not unique to the Reformers as Luther used a Greek New Testament that was compiled by the great Renaissance humanist, Erasmus of Rotterdam. So, um... It is worth noting that humanism at that time was not completely secular yet, right? It was focused some on, on human accomplishments and human ability and and trying to – again, there's elements of both these things in both camps. But um, that – so I'll, I'll just keep reading. But hopefully that makes sense that the, the humanism at this time, like Erasmus um, – he, Erasmus was humanistic, but he wasn't totally secular yet, right? So for instance, Erasmus and Luther have this big debate about free will in which uh, we get the book by Luther, The Bondage of the Will. And Erasmus's argument is basically that, um, yes, God created us, and, and yes, um, you know, the triune God is the true God, but he created humans with complete free will to, to kind of be who we want to be, right? And that you can see the humanism in that, right? That um, we're not at all bound to our creator, but that we're completely free. So is that
2: the idea of where everybody can, can become their own gods? You know, like the Roman mythology, you hate the gods. Well,
0: versus- um, yeah, I mean... Obviously, like the the Greco-Roman mythology is you know uh, 1500, 1600 years prior to this, but uh, th- so there's there's always been from the I mean from, I mean all the way back into the Old Testament there's paganism, right? There's false gods, there's idols, and ultimately the first idol was the self, right? Adam Adam and Eve they became prideful and thought that they could be like God, and so they ate of the fruit of the tree. And so um, in that sense, humanism has always been a problem because uh, man has always been prideful, right? And so uh, the the thing that's different here is that they're putting a name to it, right, and saying that this is actually a correct way to think about life, Right? But there was uh, so again, we have to be careful because um, some of the things that kind of come out of this time period, there's there's a pro and a con, right? Because on one hand, you kind of get the the more the things that are eventually going to lead to secular humanism. On the other hand, you get this this back to the sources, right? That um, because the the issue is this, uh, the issue is authority, right? that a lot of what's going on in this Renaissance Enlightenment period is that man does not want to be under authority. Now, that is one thing if we're saying that man should not be under the authority of the Pope, right? And this is part of what leads Luther to start to question things is he's living in a world where people are starting to question about things about authority right so that's good but it's a different thing if we say man should not live under the authority of God right there's good authority and there's bad authority and this is the two sides of what's going on during the world of the Reformation is people are questioning authority in general that leads to good things like saying hey we don't have to be under the authority of the Pope that also eventually leads to bad things like people saying we don't have to be under the authority of God, right?
2: Yeah.
0: So it's a, it's kind of a two-fold. Um, sword. Yeah, it's a two-edged sword. Thank you. That's the phrase I was looking for. All right. Um, the, so an- another thing that came out of this, by the way, uh, just at, to kind of connect this a little bit more, um, when we talk about, as the book says here, uh, this move, a key aspect of the Renaissance uh, was the movement to humanism. This movement led to a revival in the study of the humanities, right? So we get this this topic now of the humanities in education, which, in my opinion, is a great thing, right? that we're 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 allowed now to uh, study going back to the sources. Study philosophy. Study religion. Study literature, great literature, um, and, and whatnot. And uh, what study really what it means to be human, right? Which should lead us to a right understanding of God, right? And and this is the there's been a so it's kind of interesting that all of this ultimately led way down the line to modern education which is actually modern education now what what's the new term is very like fast forward 500 years you get this stem education right Mm -hmm. um science mathematics that kind of thing that that seems to be the big engineering technology is that what it all is Yeah. yeah um that kind of is the big big thing now but within um homeschooling circles at least just i happen to know about that um is that there's kind of been this this revival back to these earlier humanities to the philosophy and the languages and and all this so um classical christian education is is becoming much more popular among christians now especially because a lot of christians feel like they can't put their kids in public school anymore um and maybe can't afford private schools so that that's uh, kind of an interesting thing that's happened is that you have this classical Christian education coming back into into vogue but anyway that's kind of all beside the point so let's get back to the, the time of the Reformation but you do get these humanities the study of the humanities coming out of here which um, I think is a good thing because it does it should lead people to a right understanding of God Okay. yeah go ahead
2: Education
1: in order to—they're not the common
0: nurses, right? Yeah. That's more. Yeah, yeah. This is happening in higher education. Um, I mean, Luther and Melanchthon teach at at Wittenberg University, and uh, there's this. Um, I mean, it's like any any kind of philosophical change in the world is people write about it, they talk about it, and it. It starts, you know, maybe with one guy, one year, and then he writes and, and teaches and thinks, and then, you know, he gets a couple students, and then they they continue those ideas, and then they continue those ideas, and over the course of 100 years or so, if an idea catches on academically, then it, it spreads throughout whatever the educational system is and, and trickles down into into culture, right? Um And how ideas spread throughout culture is an interesting topic in its own, especially uh, as that changes over time. Like, when we talk about how ideas spread throughout culture, we can't help but talk about mass media, which they're not really dealing with until you get the printing press. The printing press is the first form of mass media, right? But um, today when we talk about how ideas spread, we have to talk about Social media and news media and entertainment media and 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 book and book media, right? Um, so the way ideas spread can change over time, but uh, normally the way ideas start is in some level of people in some level of authority, right? And it trickles down into culture. Um, what's interesting about Christianity is that it spreads more from the bottom up, right? When, when the apostles are, are preaching in Acts, uh, you get this really wise um, Pharisee named Gamaliel who Paul trained at Gamaliel's school. So he's one of the higher-up educational authorities in the, in the Jewish community. And Gamaliel says, like, just leave these weird Christians alone because if it's just some dumb idea, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And these kind of weird apostles who are talking about eating Jesus' body and blood and how Jesus was raised from the dead, um, a lot of people think they're crazy. But then that idea actually... Spreads because it's of God and it can't be stopped. So, um, but most of the time, I'd say otherwise. Ideas start from authority and trickle down into culture. But, but sometimes you get an idea that starts that's more grassroots, right? And it's normally more more pure in that sense as well. But um, I think the whole renaissance and enlightenment catches on with the commoner because it does give them a level of freedom that they did not have in the middle ages so all right um anyway i don't want to get too bogged down in all this stuff but um we don't have to talk about greek and latin names and all that you can read that if you want to um but yeah, the 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 thing I really want to fo- just come back to again is the the thing that really drove the reformation in the sense of the world of the reformation is this back to the force back to the sources ad fontes movement which drove them to the scriptures, right? And over and over again we've seen the last however many weeks that the thing that ends up on the center of the board circled in big letters is the Bible, right? Every time. That's what is driving the Reformation. That's what's driving Luther. That's what drives Lutheranism. That's what this is all about, is the preservation of God's word throughout history. Okay. Um, then we get this uh, section here about early attempts of the Reformation, which I already mentioned that there there were already some pro- People did recognize the problems. People aren't stupid, right? People did recognize some of the problems in the late medieval Roman Catholic Church. And um, a couple of those people notably were uh, John Wycliffe in the late 14th century. And Wycliffe, uh, you might have heard that name before because he's the first one to translate the Bible into English, actually. So even before Luther translated the Bible in German, John Wycliffe had translated the Bible into, into English in England. Um, uh, however, uh, he was eventually condemned as a heretic, uh, for (laughs) doing such, right? And, um, this is a kind of interesting fact. After his death, the council of Constance condemned him as a heretic and in a symbolic and to us seemingly silly measure, they ordered his bones be dug up and burned, right? They really didn't like him for this, so, (laughs) um, And then Jan Hus uh, of Bohemia took up many of Wycliffe's ideas. Hus challenged the Roman Catholic Church particularly on the celibacy of priest and the idea that laity should receive communion only in one kind. And uh, Hus was summoned to the Council of Constance, also the same same council um, that condemned Wycliffe. And... Was guaranteed safe conduct uh, to and from the council by the Holy Roman Emperor. However, at, at the council, they condemned him and burned him at the stake. Oh, so, that's a lie. yes, people have been known to do that before. Mm-hmm. Why? And so it started as um, this pious thing that. So they would only receive the bread and, and not the wine. And the reason was because of spillage, because they did not want to – any uh, they didn't want to spill the blood of Christ. And the Roman Catholics kind of have this problem of – what. It, so what does Jesus say when he says, this is my body, this is my blood? What does he say to do with it? He says, take and eat and take and drink, right? And the Roman Catholics have always had this problem—not always, but they they ended up with this problem where they recognized that it was Jesus' body and blood. And instead of taking and eating and taking and drinking, they said, no, instead we're going to take and worship, right? Which, on one hand, you can say, well, it is Jesus." So in a sense, we should be reverent with it. We should worship um, when we receive the Lord's Supper. But um, they would do silly things like this Corpus Christi festival, the body of Christ, Corpus Christi in Latin, where they would take Jesus, they would take the body, they would take the the bread that had been consecrated, the host, and they would put it in this uh, cross that um, had a little... Circle in the middle that you put the the host inside of, and they would um, march it around in a in a parade, and people would bow down to it and stuff. And uh, they and then they would um, you can still there's still plenty of these today. I'm sure there's probably one in Memphis somewhere. They'll the, they'll have things called uh, adoration chapels where you'll you at roman catholic churches they'll have little chapels with one of these crosses inside where people will go and pray in the presence of of the the body of christ right Mm -hmm. and so um anyhow but all this is just to show this kind of problem that they had that they instead of focusing on the eating and drinking they focused on this worshiping of the the body and the blood or the elements and one of the things that that caused is this piety that they don't want to mess it up at all, right? They don't want to spill any of the wine. They don't want to drop the host on the floor. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to be irreverent in any, in, in any way, right? Um, and so that led to the, the priest at some point all getting together and saying, you know, we're just going to give the bread because that's easier than giving the wine, because there's a lot less likelihood that it's going to be spilled or drop or whatever, and so um, that's where the one kind came from. And it was probably I, I think it was some edict at some point. Um, it doesn't say here, does it? So this practice uh, dictated that only priests could partake of Christ's blood and the wine, and the other communicants only received only his body and the bread, right? But um, anyhow, the 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 real problem with that is that one Jesus said take eat and take drink so that's what we should do with it and we shouldn't worry about these other things and the second thing is that the lord's supper is literally for the forgiveness of sins so i'm pretty sure jesus is going to forgive you if you if you accidentally spill the wine in the lord's supper like it's for the forgiveness of sins right and of course we try and take care of it reverently like so and we try and make spills not happen but Sometimes it happens. Not the end of the world, right? Um, It's it's still for eating and drinking, right? So we still got to do what he says, um, more than worrying about that. So anyhow, that's where it came from. Yeah, Steve.
1: Uh, Relics. I think the Catholic Church had a practice of collecting those, and then they would hold them and and kind of worship them too. Yeah. Luther's Day. The uh, Frederick the Great, or whatever his name was, uh, had a bunch of those, yeah. and uh, we were convinced, well, you know,
0: we're not worshiping that. Yeah, and this is where you know I think that the we do need to be able to say with the with the we talked about the Protestant and the Reformed um, numbering of the Ten Commandments the other week. And how they really want to emphasize, you shall not make unto thee any graven images. Mm -hmm. And we'd say, yeah, we, I mean, that is a commandment. And we do agree with that. And if people take, um, you know, pieces, you know, supposedly pieces of of Jesus' cross, which uh, the thing with some of those relics is, like, there was no way to prove that they were what they said they were, right? So they'd have, like, pieces of Jesus' cross, or uh, hair from, from the Virgin Mary, or Uh, you know, Saint Peter's, like Saint Peter's ring or something like that. I don't know. I just made that one up. The Shroud of Turin is very interesting. Okay, so I'm a defender of the Shroud of Turin. (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't worship it, but it is that one actually has a lot of historical evidence um, behind it. So, so that's we'll talk about that sometime. But, um, but a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the, um relics that they held on to um, they you know they'd have like the or the bones of some saint or whatever you know uh, didn't even have a lot of historical evidence some of them did some, some of them did but yeah I mean if you're worshiping those things right um, and thinking that they owning them contributes to this treasury of merits and to the forgiveness of sins that is a graven image that's a false God right and and so we should we should be able to say that. And uh, Luther did say that, right? So that's a good yeah. Uh, that was one of the abuses in the in the Roman Catholic Church at the time.
2: Well I was I was yeah, listening to um, someone talking the other night and it <clears throat> surprised me to death. But I guess I was, I guess uh, uh, this guy was talking about Christianity mm-hmm. and how we are uh, worshipping an idol. Jesus Christ is the idol. That's what he was saying. We worship, we're going to hell because we're worshiping an idol. That's a hot take.
0: I've, <coughs> I've never heard that.
2: Who <laughs> was that? He, he was. Uh, they had this. Uh, these people over in Jerusalem. I guess they was trying to to help with the, with the massacre. And they had these Christians, and they were standing on the corner talking. And this Jewish man came up, and he said that uh, we need to get. They need to get out of Jerusalem because we were worshiping. Christians, oh, okay.
0: A Jew, Jew said this. That yeah, makes sense. He was, he yeah, okay. I thought you're saying this is someone calling themselves Christian. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. He
2: said we were going to hell, and he said that in the I don't know. It might have been a pastor, and he was saying, well, "Why would you say that?" And he was like, "Because you're worshiping Jesus, and Jesus, you're worshiping an idol." Yeah,
0: the the well, ju- the Jewish religion. Yeah, the Jewish religion rejects Jesus as the Messiah, and in fact, they think they do think he's a false. Um, God, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, which is the kind of standard for religious uh, Judaism today, um, says that Jesus is um, in hell, boiling in a pile of uh, fecal matter. So, yep, the Talmud, the, Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. Yeah. So, Mhm. So this is why I I, I kind of don't – it's always bothered me, this phrase. I understand where it's coming from to a degree uh, if if you take it on its surface as being, like, about the Old Testament. But this phrase, Judeo-Christian values, I've never really understood that because uh, the Jewish religion and the Christian religion don't share the same value system. So whatever that means. (laughs) But – um,
2: so, so what's going on now? It took me what, when he said that, cause he was he was he was really angry. Yeah. He was really angry that Christians were there trying to help them. So, I, but I was looking at it and I thought, well, but they do have some Jewish people that do believe in Jesus.
0: So the problem with the word Jewish is that it's both an ethnicity and a religion. Right. So sometimes people are talking about the ethnicity and sometimes they're talking about the religion. And um, so there are ethnic Jews. I went to I went to seminary with an, a guy who is ethnically Jewish, uh, but he had he's an LCMS Lutheran. You know, he's converted to Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that uh, that that's the distinction is that there's an ethnicity and a religion. So the religion rejects Jesus. People of the ethnicity can believe whatever they want. Because that's just a, it's just an ethnicity. So yeah, yeah, Steve.
1: Well, you know, Jews after the World War II, they looked at Christians and they thank them for not getting them completely obliterated, because we, we were the ones that helped preserve their religion. I mean, we, we didn't let them just burn up. <laughs> So, so there's,
0: you know, they, and people do say, yeah, thank you for doing that. Yeah, people forget. That's right. Yeah. Doesn't stop idolatry from being idolatry. All right. Um, so in the Holy Roman Empire, this is the, we'll just finish on this, we'll finish up this chapter here real quick. Um, this is the, the context of the world of the Reformation. And we've mentioned this before, but the uh, Holy Roman Empire is the confederation of Germanic states at the time. So the HR, I uh, abbreviate it normally HRE, um, Holy Roman Empire. It's more or less equal to uh, to Germany, to modern day Germany. So this is why we, you know, think about Luther as a German of sorts. Um, it's one of these Germanic states. Uh, but it's it's more this kind of loose confederation. And basically there's an emperor who's got these uh, princes around the different areas. Um, and, and then those, those princes and the emperor are elected by, by what are called electors. Um, but this uh, – so I, I kind of skipped that paragraph. Let me read about King Charles. So Charles is the emperor at the time, Charles V. A man of tremendous power. He was also known as uh, Charles the First, King of Spain. Okay, because uh, he held the throne uh, that controlled Spain, uh, which was Austria as well. And, and if you remember earlier, this is right after um, they had the Holy Roman Empire had taken over Spain from the from the Turks, from the Muslims. So. Um, he's Charles the First in in Austria and Spain, and then Charles the V in the and the rest of the Holy Roman Empire. Which is kind of confusing. It's confusing. Um, if you count the official control of the Americas by Spain, um, the Holy Roman Empire, by the way, if you go back in history, um, you can get there's some like really good books about this. Uh, this this is kind of formed under Charlemagne. So if you ever heard of you know if you know about Charlemagne, this is kind of where this comes from. All right. Uh, he was. As the king of Austria and Spain, he was not only a devout Catholic, but also the ruler of one of the strongly Catholic lands. Therefore, Charles tried to stamp out the movement of the Reformation in order to consolidate his power. Um, He was also worried about the the invasion of Muslims. Right? He wanted his people to be unified um, in case the Muslims invaded. Uh, Charles was the official protector of the Catholic faith, which is why Luther was declared a heretic, is because Charles declared him an outlaw and free to be killed by anyone. So this is kind of an interesting thing, right? Is that it wasn't just it wasn't the Pope that wanted him killed, it was the Emperor, right? Mm-hmm. And I I want to say this is historically the case is that um, almost always persecu- Christian persecution is not going to be by like necessarily someone like the Pope or even really by other religions, right? I mean, you sometimes you get Muslims who try and kill Christians, but it's always still through the veil of politics. It's not like a Muslim sees a person that's Christian, you know, and is like, "I'm gonna kill that person because they're Christian." It's it's more of like a Muslim country versus a Christian country, you know, politically. Um, so persecution, I think, is almost always generally political in nature, which is why the church does to some degree need to care about politics right like and the we can talk more about the separation of church and state at another time but if we're going to be persecuted it's probably not going to be by the pope or by some muslim community it's probably going to be by the government so anyhow okay However, as much as Charles wanted to stop Luther in the Reformation, his power in many parts of the empire was greatly limited. This was especially true in Saxony. Um, Luther lived and worked in Saxony as a subject of Duke Frederick the Wise. Besides being a duke, Frederick was one of the most powerful, or one of the powerful electors. Um, Ironically, Frederick cast the deciding vote uh, to place Charles on the throne of the empire. While Frederick did not openly dare openly defy the rule of Charles, he was willing and able to subvert the attempts to squash the Reformation. This included a move that probably saved Luther's life. We already talked about this a while back, um, that after Luther was declared a heretic, uh, Frederick um, hid Luther away in the Wartburg Castle. Okay. Um, it's also important to remember that Charles was the ruler of two other countries and as such was often distracted from dealing with the Reformers by little things like ruling Austria and Spain, trying to limit the papal reaches for power in his lands, a Turkish invasion, and a possible war with France. Okay, so kind of an interesting time to live, um, certainly. And again, I think you can see God's hand in the ability to allow the Reformation to happen because all the right people are in the right places at the right time. Right? So during uh, this
1: period, was Luther
0: married? No, not during the time when he got hidden away in the Wartburg castle I think that was a little bit later I'd have to double check but i'm I'm pretty sure that was let's see um uh fifteen twenty one he's excommunicated and then he's not married until forty six is when he dies um, when does he get married We did talk about that yeah uh, I know we talked about him. Oh, here we go. Fifteen twenty-five. So, yeah, but he married. He married. Um, he married Katharina von Bora about four years after that. Mhm. All right. So, um, we got this this final little section here, which I think is good. After nearly five hundred years, does the Reformation still matter? The Roman Catholic Church is not the same as it was in the time of Luther. And Lutheran churches do not agree among themselves on what it means to be Lutheran um, all the time, right, of course. So, well, well, are the questions debated during the Reformation still important? And I think the answer to this is yes, right? Are we saved by grace from God or by what we do, right? That's an important question, and the Reformation helps us answer that. Is the Bible held up as the, and I would include here the absolute or the main or the sole authority, for what we believe and teach and, and how we live, right? That's an important question, right? What do the sacraments mean, right? And you could add a lot more questions to this. Um, and even just some of the things we were just talking about, like what is what is the church's relationship to government, right? This is a Reformation question. Um, what what should we study when it comes to, to our education system, right? Um, talking about things like the humanities and humanism and the Renaissance. Like, this is this is kind of what I was saying about Luther a little bit earlier. This is a fundamentally important time in history, um, especially for the church and especially for our church, but for the whole world, really, right? And, and we have to learn from history. Um, if, we don't, if we don't learn from history, we're at a severe deficit in knowing how to live our lives today. So... Um, Anyway, I'm kind of a history nerd, so I like this stuff. But um, but but regardless, it's still important for us to to think about and try and learn some lessons from. All right, any final questions, comments, Steve? Yeah.
1: Would a uh, deist, which is you know some is of the more constitutional in the United States, come from the uh, left side up there, of going back to the Bible, or are they more from the humanist?
0: Uh, they're, they're more from the humanist side, yeah. Um, America, whether we like to admit it or not, is, is kind of a unique project in country building because um, it's, it's really founded on enlightenment, uh, on a lot of enlightenment ideas. And um, now, I th- there were a few deists, like Jefferson was a deist, mm-hmm. and uh, who else was a deist? I don't remember. Now, I will say by and large most most of the founding fathers were still Protestant Christians and the official religions of most of the 13 colonies were Protestant Christianity, various forms of Protestant Christianity. So there is a little bit of a nuance there in that like when the Constitution talks about freedom of religion, I think it's talking about like what are you a are you a Methodist or are you an Anglican or are you a Lutheran? Like that's Kind of, you know, and maybe if you're a Catholic, we'll let you in. But um, that it, that's obviously up to interpretation. But the, there's a, there's something to be said there. But um, there is a lot of this humanist influence in in the beginning of in the beginning of America. So um, it is what it is. But good question. Any other questions, thoughts, uh, concerns? Yes, sir. Sorry, I forgot you earlier.
1: Uh, maybe somebody. No, what was my first? Oh,
0: yeah. If the press print, and it was so hard how did people understand. If the what was so hard? Press print. Oh, the printing press. Uh, the, the printing press allowed people to understand because they could read. You know, like how we have printers today that print out pieces of paper and books? This was the first kind of printer.
2: I thought you said it was
0: hard. Yeah, it was hard for people to read before that. Because the, everybody
2: had to
1: handwrite each book. So if you got a book, somebody had to handwrite
0: it. Does that make sense? All right. All right, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you again for this day, and we pray that you would continue to help us learn uh, from history that your word might continue to be preserved even in our time, and that the gospel would have free course, that it would be preached to the joy and edifying of your holy people. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.